But as I said, please uh, have that outline open and Exodus 32, which was on page 90 of uh, the Church Bibles. Now Finn, my eldest son, my five-year-old son, is a master contortionist. Uh, He's able to sleep in virtually any position you could possibly imagine. Uh, He gets this from his mother. There is, of course, one obvious downside to such a skill and that is that quite frequently Finn will fall asleep uh, in these bizarre positions only to wake up later with a ridiculously stiff neck. This happens uh, most often in the car and it doesn't, doesn't even require a long journey. We were driving to B&Q yesterday, not a long journey, and yet then again it happened, there he was, in the back seat like this. But it happens quite regularly when we're going on a, a long trip or a holiday and uh, I'll look back in the rearview mirror and I'll admire his latest contortion with a bit of a smirk, thinking he's going to regret that later. Which of course he does as he wakes up and he gives me that look that says, what sort of dad are you? What sort of dad would let his son fall asleep in this sort of position? And so I give him some sort of lame advice like, never mind it, if you go to sleep in the other direction for a little while, it'll all sort of even out over time. And to be honest, as much as he complains and it looks like the world is coming to an end when he wakes up from one of these slumbers, a stiff neck, at least for Finn, is not really that big a deal things do right themselves pretty quickly. And yet when the Bible talks about the idea of a stiff neck, it says it is one of the most serious ailments, serious diseases that could afflict a person of God. It tells us that the disease is not rare and it shows us this by repeating its references to it again and again and again. The reach of this disease is universal and while the disease itself presents in a seemingly innocuous way a stiff neck, it presents a much deeper, virulent and deadly disease below it that has spread by that stage throughout our whole body and mind and soul, the disease of stubbornness. And again, this idea of stubbornness hardly seems worth getting too worked up about. Why is the Bible so concerned that we would be stubborn? I mean, after all, surely stubbornness is somewhat of a positive in our culture or at least some sort of endearing quirk. We all have within our family at least one stubborn old mule or perhaps a stubborn young mule in our family, someone who we know is stubborn, we know it causes discomfort, but in the end it's no big deal, is it? Hardly that serious. Sure, it may cause discomfort, but it's not going to kill me, is it? Or is it? You see, when the Bible talks about this disease of a stiff neck, of the disease of stubbornness, it says it's far more serious than you could possibly imagine. Proverbs 29 verse 1 says this, a man who remains stiff-necked will suddenly be destroyed. And you start to see how serious this ailment really is. And so tonight we continue a series that we began last week looking at the spiritual diseases that could threaten us as God's people. And what we're going to see tonight is God's own prognosis of this seemingly harmless disease, stubbornness before a good God. And what Exodus 32 to 34 are going to show us is the gravity of a disease like this when we are stubborn before our gracious and glorious God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start with a diagnosis. We're going to test ourselves tonight to see whether this disease has come upon us, the disease of a stiff neck towards God. And to do that, we need to start with the symptoms of the disease. And you see them in the first few verses of our passage. Have a look at 32 verse 1. 
When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. To see how serious uh, this first symptom that this verse shows us really is, the symptom of unbelief, you need to realise where we're up to in the story of the Exodus. The people who say these words to Aaron in verse 1 have just seen their God wonderfully rescue them out of Egypt the most powerful nation on the earth. God has powerfully reached in and grabbed them out of slavery, rescued them. They've heard his voice. They've seen his glory day after day and yet their response is, come make us gods who will go before us. It's breathtaking, isn't it? As Moses, at this very moment, as they say these words, stands on the mountain hearing God make plans to dwell with his people, make every provision for that to be possible, God's people are down in the valley responding with stubborn unbelief. This is despite the fact that they can clearly see God's glory at work at the top of the mountain. Despite the fact that every morning they wake up and find absolutely everything they need, they respond with this stubborn unbelief towards God's obvious goodness. It's an unbelief as far as they're concerned caused by a lack of sight. They just can't see how God is out for their good. There's something deeply irrational about their response, isn't there? Deeply stubborn. And if we're seeing it clearly, it will start to expose our own stubbornness before God. I mean, are we not the same? While God is busy providing for our every need every day, we keep looking for the gods that we can see right in front of us who will go before us in life, who will prop us up, who will give us what we think we need. And while God has wonderfully redeemed us by sparing not even his own son to meet our deepest need, the need of forgiveness, we in our faulty vision feel like we need that provision less and less as each day goes by. And even in our future, while God is preparing a place for us to dwell with him, a place beyond our imagining, a place that Corinthians tells us that no eye has seen nor heart conceived, we busy ourselves with what our imaginations can cope with, and we settle for our earthly heavens, the heavens of our own making. Symptom one of a stiff neck is a stubbornness towards God's goodness because we don't trust that goodness, even though it is all around us, in our past, in our present and wonderfully in our future. Despite this extravagant goodness towards us, we go in search of a God who might go before us in life. And in that we see the second symptom, wanting a God we can see to go before us. And here you start to see just how sinfully stubborn we really can be when we are stiff-necked before our God. You see, the problem with a stiff neck, if if you've ever had one, is that your vision is very much restricted, very much narrowed and very shallow, isn't it? And so if we're like that before God, we fail to see the sheer depth and width of his grace towards us. And so we set off in search of what we want, forsaking what we need from him. And how is it that we work out what we want in life? What these other gods will provide us that we don't think God can? Well, if you've got a stiff neck, it's actually quite simple, this search for what we want. What I want is right in front of me. That's all I can see anyway with my stiff neck. I started to see this in my youngest child, Evelyn, who's one, and she's at the stage where if you put absolutely anything in front of her, it doesn't matter what it is, all of a sudden she says, yes, That's what I've always wanted, that red ball. I've always wanted that red ball. I've never seen it before. 
But now that I have it, that's what I wanted. And I think we're that way with, with our stiff neck towards God. What we want is what is just in front of us. I don't bother looking beyond there because I'm too stubborn to do so. And you see this with Aaron as he begins to make gods for these people. Do you see it in verse 2? As he searches around for a suitable god, he doesn't search very far, does he? Right in front of him is their gold, their jewellery, and he fashions gods from what he sees right in front of him. He says, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they had handed him and he made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, a bull, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. The things right in front of us become our gods. The things that to us are precious and powerful in our eyes, that are good to have and that bring us good, they become the gods that go before us in this life. And there are many, aren't there? Many things that we see straight in front of us that we grow dependent on. Take, for example, the god of money. Now, there are many idols that we humans create for ourselves to to go before us in life, and in one sense this is the most obvious, isn't it? And perhaps if we're talking about idols tonight, the sort of idols that we make for ourselves, you want something a little less obvious, a bit more left field. I mean, I know money can be an idol. Give me an idol that I don't know about that snuck into my life. Let me say there is a great danger in being familiar with your idols. I remember reading of a guy a few years ago, there was a movie made of him who was a a great enthusiast of bears in the American wilderness. And he'd grown so familiar with them because season after season he would go and live with them for the whole season. And he got to sort of play with them and live with them and he'd just become one of them, really. And this happened year after year. And then one year, uh, when it came time to leave them and go home, when the, when the bears headed off to wherever bears go, he, uh, he, he said, oh no, I'm going to stick around this season. You know, I've become so familiar with these bears that it's much more fun living with them than, than with other humans, so I'm going to stay here. And the end of the movie finishes with uh, not the actual scene itself, which is, which is nice, but uh, just the sound of what happened when he made that decision. Within days he was destroyed by those bears. And let me say, I think we can do that with a God of money. So familiar to us. Of course I know it's an idol. It doesn't make it any less dangerous. We need to be honest with ourselves when it comes to money and our tendency to allow our neck to stiffen and get stuck watching it. And why not? It's good to have, isn't it? Only a false piety would say otherwise. That's where the danger is. We humans are not so stupid as as to make gods out of bad and weak things. We choose the good things and the powerful things that God gives us and we make gods out of them. So it's not hard to get fixed on the idea that money is the powerful good in my life the God who goes before me, who makes me able in life. Firstly, who makes me able to have. Below our TV is a little cupboard and in this cupboard is a a growing collection of catalogues. You name the shop, we've got the catalogue for it. They they keep popping through our door, so I, for some reason, too stupid to think of what else to do with them, so I just walk over to this cupboard and I put them in there. And uh, over the last three years, we've got quite a collection of these things. I was looking through them the other day and I was thinking... This is where the God of money comes in handy, doesn't he? Every single item in these catalogues is something I could have want for. 
And it's the God of money who's going to go before me and make that happen. That's why they keep sending them to me. It makes me able to have. Secondly, it makes me able to solve things. That's what the God of money is so powerful to do, isn't he? And, and not just for us personally, for us as nations. You see this picture on your outline. It's, it's gone a bit murky in the photocopying, but there you have a, a, a golden bull, would you believe it? A golden bull outside the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, it stands there as a symbol for how powerful the, the money markets can be. And right around it, you'll see a, a, a series of people with their hands on the bull. And this is a series of Christians who are praying with their hands laid on this bull for financial well-being for America. We pray to the God of money because he can solve our financial problems. It makes us able to have, able to solve, even able to protect, doesn't it? That's why we endlessly calculate how we are going financially, endlessly worry about mortgages, endlessly worry about interest rates and things like that because the God of money is my buffer, my safety barrier in life. And in the end it is the trappings of money that become the gods that go before us. The gods that we can see, we can really see, that tell us that what we have, that, that tell us that we can solve things, that we can protect ourselves. And we grow to trust their capacities more than our gods. You ever wondered why uh, the trappings that money gets us are called that, trappings? The scriptures know why. 1 Timothy 6.9 People who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. The good and powerful gifts God gives us make miserable gods. Traps, in fact. So there's the God of money. And then there is the God of sex. Again, what a gift. How good and precious it really is. A gift from an extraordinarily good and wise and fun God. And the scriptures know how good sex is. The very first command that God gives the man and the woman is to have sex. It knows it's good and it knows it's powerful like dynamite. And once you see how good and powerful it really is, you also see the danger a gift like this presents. When your neck is so stiffened that, you, that your eyes become fixed on the everyday, then you see that a God like the God of sex can be the one who goes before us. I've seen it again and again with, with people that I've spent time with over the years. I remember a guy by the name of Tim uh, in the final year of, of high school in the youth group that I led in Sydney. A man who uh, in many ways was passionate for God, who loved discovering more about God. But I remember the, the, the weeks uh, in his last year where his eyes got fixed on this good thing, trapped in fact, could no longer see God's good purposes and the joy that comes with them. All he could see was how good his girlfriend of three weeks made him feel. He threw eternity away for that. The God of sex is a miserable God. And let me say, when it comes to the God of sex, it is not just a danger for those who are unmarried. It's foolish to think that sex is only an idol for, for unmarried people. That's not the way idolatry works, is it? We idolise things that are right in front of us. And so for the married man or woman, sex is a likely candidate to be the God who goes before us in our marriage, who holds our marriage together, or, or so often the God who leads to tensions. 
when sex becomes something I want or have or possess rather than something I give. It is a good gift but it makes a miserable God. While we're talking about making gods that we can see that go before us, let me mention one more, the God of position. What we do, who we are, our role in life, our career, can so easily become the God who goes before us, giving me what I want, significance. I remember meeting up recently with a man from uh, this church family who was stressed up to his eyeballs with his job and I don't blame him, he had lots of reasons to be stressed. Endless hours, endless pressures, endlessly complaining about that pressure. But changing the role, changing job, out of the question. My job is important. I've worked very hard to get here. You know you are stiff-necked when you can't change the situation you're in because I'm a man of responsibilities. I'm significant. I make a difference. Let me ask you, who are you without your role? You know the answer to that question. Who are you without your role? Or if you're a mum or a stay-at-home dad here, who are you without your children? If you can't answer that question, it may well be that the God of position is your God. We need to see these symptoms of of being stiff-necked towards our good God clearly because they're a great danger to us, aren't they? This failure to trust his goodness and then this wanting a God who who will go before us. In the end, we want to make gods who won't challenge anything that we think, convenient gods that make no demands on us. And that's why this cow is such a brilliant picture, isn't it? The cow's not going to ask me anything. The cow's not going to demand things of me. He's not going to hold me to account. He's not going to judge me. And so I'm left to judge myself. When it comes to the prognosis of, of having a stiff neck before God, I, I self-assess the danger. The problem with human self-assessment is it's full of self-justification and delusion. And if you want to see that perfectly captured, have a look at Aaron's excuses for what's happened when Moses comes down the mountain. Have a look at verse 21 of chapter 32. Here you see three things that we do when God challenges our devotion to our idols. The first thing we do, you see it there in verse 21, is we diminish the sin. Moses says, or Aaron says, don't be angry with me, Lord. What are you so upset about, Moses? You're making too big a deal of this. What's your problem? We are masters at downplaying how serious our sin is. It's no big deal. I was thinking about that this week and I remembered why I love the Book of Common Prayer so much. You know, quite regularly in our services that we, we pray a prayer of confession and I've got to be honest, the, the, the more modern confessions get more and more tame in, our, in what we'll admit before God about our sin. We, we love to downplay it. But the BCP holds nothing back. Listen to this, it says, We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins. I've got to be honest, every time I pray that at an 8am communion I'm thinking, bewail? I'm not sure I bewail very often. And then it goes on, we are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. can't remember the last time I grieved over my sin. The burden of them is intolerable. We are masters at diminishing our sin. And then there's the second game we play in our self-assessment. We divert blame. Again, verse 22. Basically what Aaron says is the people made me do it. 
You know what they're like. They're evil people. I can't be held responsible for this. They couldn't trust you and you. You were nowhere to be seen. You were up the mountain. How often we blame other people or circumstances for our sin. And then there's my favourite excuse, number three in verse 24, we deny reality altogether. Aaron says, so I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. And they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came a cow. What are the odds? Great verse, isn't it? Hey presto. How often we do this with our sin too. It just happened. It was natural. The only way we can deny the reality of our sin is to have a neck so stiff that we block our vision to the consequences of this idolatry before a holy God. But you know what? Our passage tells us our God is too kind to let the reality of our sin miss us. To see how sinful it is to fail to trust a good God and to seek after other gods. And so rather than leave us in our self-diagnosis, the true doctor of our souls, our God and our maker, tells us the truth. Firstly, he tells us the truth about the condition itself. Have a look at verse 7 of chapter 32. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you have brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. You see, making gods out of the good and powerful gifts that the Lord gives us is a corruption of our nature. We're not made to glory in the puny gods of our own making. We're made to glory, uh, for the glory of the God who made us. Without living for him, we are forever bent out of shape. God also tells us the truth about the outcome of this condition. Have a look at verse 25 of chapter 32. Moses saw the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control so they became a laughing stock to their enemies. That's the consequence of idolatry, running wild. Sounds good, doesn't it? If if you say it quickly, running free, unbound, unrestricted. But again, God pulls the delusion out from under us. When when you make a God in the shape of a bull, you are not running free, you are running with the bulls. And we've seen in Pamplona this week, that is a dangerous exercise. We all too often underestimate the power of our idols to destroy us. The consequences of sin, the sin of idolatry, are not small, are they? And if you want to see how serious they are, keep going down to verse 27. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and his friend and his neighbour. And that day about 3,000 of the people died. When God in judgment gives us over to the consequences of our idolatry, it destroys everything dear to us. Do you see who dies here? Our brother does. Our friend does. Our neighbour does. Those closest to us. Our relationships are destroyed. What a tragedy it would be to gain so much financially and yet shipwreck your faith. What a tragedy it would be to impress your colleagues and yet destroy your marriage. If we are stubborn against a good God, that is the serious disease that could afflict us. And without remedy, it will destroy us and more likely those we love as well. Well, Let me finish with the cure. 
Let me finish by briefly answering the question of how God responds to our stubbornness towards him. And we're only going to touch on it tonight. It is most remarkable and I think well worth meditating on this week. He does the most incredible and powerful thing he could. He makes himself known to us. He shows us his own glory so that we won't mistake the gifts that he gives us for our God. Why is God's revelation of his own glory such a good cure for a stiff neck? Well, it's because it gloriously gives us what we need most. Let me show you what I mean. Moses goes back up the mountain and uh, and he pleads before God for this stiff-necked people. He's looking for assurances. He's looking for a way back, a a chance that stiff-necks may be turned around. God's answer is to show Moses his glory. See it there in chapter 33, verse 18. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. What does God do? He proclaims his glory to us. He says to us, choose your God carefully. As you weigh up your money and your sex and your significance and whatever else might go before you in life, do it knowing who I am before you. Chapter 34, verse 5. And the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's who I am. God's answer to stiff necks is to jolt our attention with a revelation of something we have never seen the like of before, his glory, his goodness. He proclaims it to us. Let me encourage you with summer upon us once more, a time which is a time of refreshment. For many, a time of new starts as we look to the year ahead. Make this a summer where you allow God to proclaim his glory to you. Every time you open these words that we are reading, every time you open the scriptures, God is proclaiming his glory to you. Let me say, do that, allowing God's glory to be proclaimed to you, not because you feel you must, You know, I meet too many Christians who are weighed down by guilt when it comes to reading the Bible because for them reading the Bible has become like doing the tax return. It's it's kind of uh, annoying. It's something I know I've got to do. I I can't see much point to it, but I I try to do it because I know it's important. Reading the Bible can become for us a stale academic exercise. If that's you, have a look at those verses again, 34, 5-7. See the God who is revealing himself when you open that book. When God reveals his glory to us in his word, it's not glory as we know it, is it? When we think of glory, we think of some sort of objects, don't we? The Australian cricket team, they were once glorious. There's a, the there's a sort of thing that we think is glory or a spectacular view, some sort of object that, that, that is unconnected to us. But look carefully at 34, 5-7. When God describes his glory to us, He's not describing an object at all, is he? Or facts, for that matter. All the words he uses to describe his glory are relational, aren't they? The glorious God who reveals himself to us in the scriptures is not an object, but a personal God who desires relationship with us. And it's a relationship that is incredibly good for us. 
You see, the more you allow God to proclaim his glory to you, the more you will see his compassion for you, his love for you, his faithfulness to you, not only in the past, in the present, but what is yet to come, the more you will realise who God really is to you, a friend. And the more you see that you have a friend in the Lord and what a friend you have, the clearer you will see your sin for what it really is. You will see it as a failure to recognise how good he is to you, as a refusal to trust his love for you, as a walking away from his faithful friendship towards you. And the more his glory exposes your sin, the more you'll know how much you need his forgiveness. And you'll echo the words of Moses in 32 verse 31, where he says, What a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of your book that you have written. You want to see what a glorious friend you have in the Lord? Try this. Moses goes back up that mountain to plead for the people. He even offers his life for theirs. But God won't accept it. Not a good enough offer. And you know why, don't you? Because in Jesus, God himself will go up the hill. He will carry our sins on his back and God himself will offer his life for ours. What a glorious friend he is. And finally, the more you allow God to proclaim his glory to you, not only will you see your sin and grieve over it, not only will you see your need for forgiveness and come to him for that forgiveness, you will see your need for him, the God who goes before you, the more of his glory that you know, the more of his goodness you come to trust. He won't just be what you need, he will be what you want. You'll want for his ways because you'll know they're good. You'll want to be his because he is good to be near. And you'll want his friendship as you walk through the valley, even the valley of death, the Bible tells us. Let me encourage you to let God proclaim his goodness to you, his glory so that your need of him becomes your strongest want and trust that he will answer what you want as he does with Moses in chapter 33 verse 11 one of the most amazing verses in the Bible and if you remember nothing else remember this verse, burn it into your memory this is what happens when you allow God to reveal himself to you he speaks face to face as a man speaks with his friend and he'll say what he says in verse 14 to Moses my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. What a glorious friend he is. Let's pray.